as we continue to ponder what it was like for the original disciples to, uh, to listen, to internalize, and then by his power, by his friendship, to turn around and actually live out these teachings of Jesus, I want to remind you where we've already been. In the first episode in this section, we talked about his first message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we looked at almost all of his teachings, parables, similes, descriptions, the ways that he would say, this is what it's like so that it would go into our hearts. Then from there, and you know this about me, we went into two episodes of my favorite teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of impossible possibilities, the way that it calls us into citizenship in that kingdom. Well, in our listening to almost all of the kingdom of heaven teachings Jesus ever gave, we heard him give no less than 11 parables. They were five about farming, one about cooking, three about business, two about government. So in other words, he was not only trying to plant these ideas in their and our minds using the structures of our normal daily lives, he was also trying to teach us how to think of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of any and all situations. In essence, according to Jesus, there are no borders to this kingdom, which was again, without a doubt, proven by the gloriously immeasurable heights and depths and breaths of what he spoke in his sermon, spoken up there on that mountainside. But if you noticed, on that episode when we spoke so many of the parables, we didn't actually land on any that were particularly focused on the intimacies of, I would say, direct human relationship, nor, if you were really paying attention, did we share what are probably the two most famous parables of Jesus, which is where we're going to be going in this episode. So why did I not share them before? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, because neither of them was specifically saying that they were about the kingdom of heaven, which is what that first episode was about, you know, what it's like, etc. And secondly, because I think they perfectly dovetail as a follow-up to the Sermon on the Mount. Because what if I told you that one parable perfectly encapsulates the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that one other parable perfectly describes the heart that has been grabbed by him. The first one is what it is. The second is what it does in us. And interestingly, both are given in direct response to the judgment and prevarication of the religious people of Jesus' day. So just in case you've somehow missed this in past weeks or in listening to my teaching over the years, I will say it to you again so it's clear. Religion and religiosity are incompatible with the way of Jesus. Or I'll say it this way. If you wanted to make Jesus absolutely furious, try to put a religious obstacle between himself, God, and people. That was always when Jesus grew angriest. And let's be honest, in some ways, most interesting. So let's talk about parable one the parable that perfectly encapsulates the good news of Jesus. Well, on that particular day, scores of tax collectors and known sinners were crowding around wanting to be close to Jesus. And that was when the scribes and Pharisees tried to insult him by speaking one of the truest things they could ever say about him. This is what they said. 
This man accepts sinners and even eats his meals with them. To which Jesus must have smiled like, yes, now you're getting it. And then, and just so you know, I'm going to be kind of paraphrasing. And again, this is, I think, the best picture we're ever given of the reality of the gospel. He simply begins telling a story. Listen. Once there was a man that had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, give me my share of the inheritance now. And so the father did. He split up what would eventually come to the two sons and gave that younger son his share. And off he went. He traveled far away to a distant country. And there he lived in the wildest excesses, doing whatever occurred to his flesh, enjoying everything that he had until he had no more. And then a great famine came over that distant country. And he had no more friends. He had no one to whom he could go. And so eventually, he hired himself out simply to slop pigs. And his hunger became so acute that he would longingly look at their slop and wish that he could have some. And that was when it occurred to him. The servants in my father's house have clothing and food. I, I, will, I will travel back. I, I will humble myself. I will say, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a slave so that I may have at least my daily bread. And so off he went, going through his talk in his head, preparing those words. But while he was still at a distance, just a blip on the horizon, his father, who had never stopped looking for him, saw him. He ran to him. He embraced him. The son tried to speak his little memorized quote, Father, I have betrayed God in you. Uh, make me one of your servants. I will humble myself. He tried to get those words out, and his father was shouting over his own shoulder at his servants. Bring the robe of my son. Bring the ring. Bring sandals. Kill the fatted calf. Tonight we will feast and celebrate. We will dance. We will sing. We will drink the good wine. We will do what our hearts do when they are filled with joy because my son was lost and now he is home. And so a great party began to break out. Later, the older son who had stayed behind, who had worked in the fields, who had never done anything particularly wrong in his own sight, began coming back. And at a distance, he heard the sound of the music and the shouting and the laughter and the dancing. And so he called a servant over and said, what is this? And the servant said, your brother is home. Your father has killed the fatted calf and it is a party. But the son would not go in. So the father, loving his older son, went out to him. He said, son, come in. And the son burst out. I cannot believe you would throw a party for this one who has disgraced you, who has spent all that you gave him on prostitutes and wild living. I've been here all along and I've never done anything wrong. And this is what you do for him? And the father, with a sad smile, said to his older son, my son, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate. 
because this brother of yours was lost, and now he has been found. Friends, that is the whole gospel. There's no need to add anything else. And then comes parable two. The parable, as I said, that I think perfectly describes a heart that has been taken over by that man. You see, on a different day, an expert in the law came to test Jesus with the question, Sir, how may I be sure of eternal life? To which Jesus asked him, Well, what do you think the scriptures say? Then the man, perhaps echoing what he'd already heard Jesus say to someone else, answered expertly, Well, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus responds essentially, Yes. But then this man, scratching his head, sort of wanting to put a little, let's call it hermeneutical distance between obedience and understanding, asks an amazing setup question. He asks, Okay then, but who is my neighbor? To which Jesus, and again, this is me paraphrasing, and again, I do believe this is the best picture we're ever given for what it really means to be a quote-unquote Christian, tells this following story. Listen. Once upon a time, there was a man taking the Jericho Road. It's a dangerous road. And as he went, he was grabbed by bandits. He was robbed. He was beaten. He was left nearly dead and mostly naked, lying there in the dust and dirt on the side of the road. And along that road came a practicing priest. And as he saw that man laying there in the blood and bruising of his beating, he gave him a wide berth, passing over on the other side in the shade, and continued on his way. Then along came another, this one also of the tribe of Levi, one who had been raised in the tradition of the elders and who knew what was the way of God. Well, that man came along, and seeing that man laying there in his blood with his bruises after his beating, he took the exact same path as the priest had done before. Then along came a man who was the man you hate the most, the one you've looked down on your whole life and that you were absolutely sure that you are better than because he does life wrong. Well, that man came along, saw the man laying there in the hot sun, bloody, bruised, beaten up, and he went over to him. And he cleaned him. He poured oil on his wounds. He bandaged him. He took one of his own tunics out of his uh, traveling case and he put it on the man to cover his nakedness. Then he brought him to the next town, put him up in a comfortable inn, made sure that he was as well as could be, in fact, called for the help of doctors. And then because he himself was on a trip that he had to continue on, he went to the owner of the hotel. He said, please continue to take care of this man on my dime. Here's some money. And in fact, I may be longer than I expect, so here's some extra money until he is completely well. Friends, this Samaritan 
is who we all, as believers in Jesus, are meant to be. I would love to hear from you if you listen to this in the next week or who knows when. I'd love to hear from you how it strikes you that the prodigal son is the picture of the entirety of the gospel and how the, quote, good Samaritan is the picture of who we are meant to be. I would love to hear how that hits your heart, not just your understanding, but your heart as you think about what it means to follow Jesus in this particular day of your human life, because it's been hitting me pretty hard this week. Thanks so much for listening.